welcome to the Six Hats podcast, where I, Dr. Shami, a lifestyle and nutritional medicine family doctor, will talk about how women strive to find balance each day by juggling their six roles, being a woman, mother, daughter, partner, business owner, and professional. Hello, welcome back to the Six Hats podcast. And today we're going to dive into a completely different conversation. I'm so excited to have Sean Hobble here today. Sean, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So Sean, I'm going to do a quick intro for our listeners. So Sean, you have a Bachelor of Arts in Human Rights and Ethics, a Bachelor of Laws with Honours, a Master's of Laws in Governance, and it doesn't stop there. She's currently completing her doctorate in law, looking at the intersection between public health and diet-related illness, which we're going to dive into. But more importantly, Sean, you're also a single mom of two young children, professional, a mom. Oh my God, you have so many hats. So I'd love to look at, first of all, let's talk about stress and the legal profession. What does that look like? Yeah, stress is a big one. So when I was attempting to get pregnant, I basically had some problems with that and had two miscarriages leading into actually being able to hold a baby. And I remember going after the second miscarriage, which was about 12 weeks, I remember going to the doctor and the doctor basically said, it's crunch time. You need to de-stress your life. But it wasn't helpful because I was working in medical law at the time as well. And I had dealings with like a lot of infant death claims and yeah just things happening during birth and so forth so I think I was hyper aware and hyper stressed and I did notice that there was a culture in particular and this was quite a while ago now but eight years ago it's changed a little from what I've heard but yeah the culture was that women would really work up to the last minute some women you know were standing at the photocopier and then went into labor and (gasps) after oh my god no way Really looking at that. And then I was also looking at some of the partners in the law firm and because I had access to their diary and I could just see that they had full-time nannies and I've always wanted to have kids. And I, I was driving home one night and I just went, what am I doing? You know, if I want to have kids, I actually want to see my children, which was a really difficult decision. And I think at that point where it was like make or break, basically the doctor saying if you don't make dramatic changes you won't have kids so you know you really have to think about this so uh, unfortunately much to my husband's disgust he was a lawyer as well I went home that night and I basically said I'm quitting tomorrow (laughs) wow yeah it was difficult because you know we had a mortgage we had financial responsibilities we weren't kind of set up you know like we didn't come from a financial background or we'd met at uni and we'd done all those things together so yeah it was really difficult and then I remember not working and the void that created for me which yeah because my entire identity was wound up in that profession and all of my friends worked in that profession we socialized as a couple with other couples in that profession (laughs) Yeah, so leaving that was, yeah, it was a really strange experience. But I think too, my soul was really crying out for that because it needed that expansion. I mean, I just, I'd been so tied down in working and working after hours. And I was so sort of passionate about the work that I was doing. I loved it. But, you know, like I never just picked up another book or expanded my awareness aside from the things that I do as a volunteer. So, 
like I used to volunteer for the Australian Lawyers for Human Rights. So I'd kind of get a little fix in there <laughs> with the human rights. Yeah, it was quite a transformative process, which was hard. I won't lie about it. It was really hard because I think I had very much fixed myself into like a 15, 20-year plan, maybe 30 type A personality you know this is how it's going to be I'm going to chart it on the wall it's going to be this progression and I was doing really well at that you know I was kind of like singled out as the next best up and coming thing the firm was investing a lot of training into me and so for me to turn around and do that to them I think they were quite shocked as well. Shana I'd love to look at the lead up to it because I know Mm. at that point you said that's enough what do the lead up look like are we talking years of working super long hours Mm, before you really felt the effects of high stress? Yeah, so I started working pretty much full-time when I was studying full-time because um, just coming from working class background, parents didn't go to uni, had to be self-sufficient. So I started working for a sole practitioner who specialised in human rights, which was really hard work, like human rights and employment law. And I became her right-hand kind of girl. So I was managing files and trying to study and trying to be involved in quite a serious relationship with somebody that was 10 years older than me with all of those ups and downs. So I think actually the stress probably really started, it started in the last year of uni and I started to question like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? But at that point, I just had come so far. I was like, I don't want to quit. You know, I'm going to finish this. And then that job was intensely stressful working for a sole practitioner without she didn't have many resources and it wasn't a large firm so and then yeah just having to do additional work going to tribunals and courts and you know courts don't schedule things in your time they schedule things in their time so I think it really started then and I'm pretty sure my first or second exam my second last exam was like criminal, the second criminal law. And I'd been, you know, just like doing the all night study and we had three or three and a half hour exams. So it was different back then as well. They were really intense, three and a half hours. And it was about 75 or 80% of your grade. So pressure was on. And so I'd like really crunch down and just be like 24 seven trying to wrote and memorized. I mean, they were open book, but that made it worse because the volume of information was just so intense. And criminal law in particular, we were studying pedophiles basically. And I had some incidents when I was a child involving a pedophile. So it actually re-traumatized me. I didn't realize, but subconsciously it just triggered all of that stuff, which I'd just buried. And (laughs) the day of the exam, I got into the exam sat down and was like oh my stomach's really itchy lifted up my shirt and it was just covered in like welts so then I just walked out the examiner came out and she's like what's wrong and I just showed her and she goes just go to the doctor forget about the exam and it turns out I had the shingles so bang like warning number one ignored it (laughs) so just that deep underlying stress was just like you know and then I think I thought I could change that situation by leaving that job and I'd been there for about five years I think and and my family were going to India my nan wanted to go to India for her 70th birthday so I was like okay saved a bit of money I'll resign from that job because I just want to go for months 
and you know not know what I'm coming back to so that was amazing but traveling in India is quite hard you know I was already ran down so yeah then when I got back that was probably when the real like stress of being in this profession but not really sure what I wanted to do and then finding it really hard to get a job because I've come out of such a specialized area so I took a job with one of the biggest law firms like a clerkship and they really kind of sold it to me like this is going to be amazing and you're so smart and this is brilliant and and I was living on the Gold Coast so I'd get up at four catch the train get to that job thinking you know maybe the way to go this will get me into the new cycle and yeah I think I lasted six months and I was like I can't do this culture and the way that like I'd had such hands-on experience with the first practitioner to then going to this massive massive top tier law firm when everything was you know handed down 20 times it was just so hard you know the work the love of the work wasn't there the people were really cool but then it was a bit of a party kind of culture so every Friday night we'd hit the town so it was just shocking really so I lasted six months in that one and then I took a job doing catastrophic injuries for a mid-tier like plaintiff claim firm which was great. I loved it. And that really taught me a lot in terms of the medical side of things. And then I got headhunted by another firm to do their medical stuff. So by that time, there was like so many chops and changes and so many like times moving house. <laughs> and the whole time I'd been with my partner and he was sort of going through the same motions mm-hmm. well. And it was like when we graduated, it was an economic downturn. So, and when we started the law degree, they'd just opened it up to. I think it was close to GOPs, it's mm-hmm. called here, of one to three, and then opened it up to like six or seven. So they had allowed an influx of students. So we were just graduating with this massive cohort of students. So just competition. Yeah, the competition, the stress, like, yeah, it was really intense. <laughs> and then, yeah, I mean, we managed to, because the law that I was doing was a national practice. So they said I could work from the Sunshine Coast office. We found this beautiful place on an acre in the country that was just like divine. So we managed to like wangle our way to somewhere nice to live. But then we had the commute <laughs> and, you know, there was no work from home. So it was like up at five, get to work early, stay there till nine. And then on the weekends, there'd always be some work related thing. So Yeah, I mean, by the time I was having babies, my body was just like, you can't do this. Like, you're not not going to (laughs) happen. If you see what you said when you were at uni, the sign was the shingles. Yeah. And we often do ignore those first signs because we are seeking our rewards from somewhere else and you are thriving and you're getting all these jobs and people are recognising your abilities that you kind of say, well, let me just keep pushing through. When did it come to the point of miscarriages that you said that's it? It was the second miscarriage in particular and at 12 weeks and I passed the the fetus natural. Mm. So it was like 48 hours of excruciating pain and I needed that pain. For me, that was the biggest pain I'd ever had because it took me probably for the first time in my life 
it connected my body with my soul and it showed me like that deep deep like shadow side and and that pain that I was carrying around and yeah so it was like in that 48 hours I'm pretty sure I did like a lifetime of spiritual work where it was like nothing's aligned I'm just like this shattered self that's like running around trying to help everybody else and I'm now like in this deep pain where I can feel my body (laughs) and it was yeah so it did really affect me in that way but I think it was hard but it was in a good way. And how do lawyers or professions like yourself just that's that really long hours but also the expectation set upon you guys to turn up super early work late work weekends just being always on the go like how do people I was going to say survive (laughs) survive that I think I just took it far too seriously and that's why I was a great employee and everybody loved me because I did go that extra mile, but it was of my own self-doing. I mean, there was a massive expectation. The more you did, the more you got rewarded, the more, you know, the more quickly I got promoted. But in hindsight, I could have put up so many boundaries. I think that is a generational thing that my generation, the generation before that in particular, was really brought up with that workaholism basically like you get rewarded if you work hard that's and it's like well hang on a tick you don't really you get less pay you get burnt out your body starts to give up your relationships (laughs) and is it worth it you know I think really too in the law what happened was that it went from this vocation to a huge profit-driven industry so you know, the people at the top that create the law firms, they're doing, they are raking it in and doing an amazing job at making all of that money, but they are essentially relying on younger people that have the energy that they can just churn and burn. And, you know, there was a lot of dialogues that I was exposed to where those things were just expressly said. It was like, oh, you know, you've got 20 odd cases, you've got to litigate, let's just get in a churn and burn, you know, like that language was as well so in some respects I think it's getting better from what I've heard but then in other respects I don't think it is either so it depends on the actual firm it depends on their culture depends on what their you know money-making profit strategy looks like all of those things but yeah I mean it all comes in hindsight (laughs) and that's a really good point so do young lawyers who've just graduated they go into these firms and I can sort of relate to that as a doctor just graduating. You don't know anything different. So you accept it and you accept, oh, well, this is the way it is. So you just got to do it. And it's part of your training. And especially if you've been senior people in your profession go, well, I did worse, end up just pushing through. And it was actually interesting that you said that, yeah, 20 years ago, we had to do 72 hour on calls or 48 hour on calls and we just did it. It was literally maybe three or four years later to when I graduated, that's when lots of directives came in place about hours you can work. But it took years to get there for people to stand up and say, well, this is not healthy. This is inhumane. Yeah, it's just not sustainable. Which is, do you believe like the culture is you can't set those boundaries because there's so many expectations it's hard to sort of say no or I think it's a resourcing issue at the end of the day and I mean at that time because there was an economic crisis lots of law firms have investments and you know they're private companies they have investments their investments went down so they scaled back and they just overloaded people 
So I think it's definitely just about resources and planning and management and the good firms. I've got some people that I went to uni with or people that I worked with that have gone off and opened their own firms and they just conduct things in an entirely different manner. You know, there's five women and they're just working to sustain themselves. They're not really interested in this whole profit-driven, you know, expand across the globe strategy and they're very happy. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I love hearing their stories because what it does, it just inspires people that, you know, when you're looking at a business or looking at work, you know, what are you doing it for? And what's driving you, whether it's a pure lifestyle decision and putting mental health as number one on your priority list, or is it profit-driven? Yeah. Is it growth all the time? And that's a choice that you can make. And I love to hear, love hearing those stories that you're sharing because it's allowing people. Sorry? Mine was more just insecurity because I hadn't come from a financial background. So I was like, you know, I have to just work really hard to build security. And I really want to have kids and I want to create that foundation for, you know, I mean, in hindsight, it's kind of laughable because none of it actually. Like, <laughs> it's all just this massive delusion and illusion. So true. So the whole financial stability and yeah, absolutely. But then you can't drive yourself to, you know, feeling unwell in the process at the same time. But Sean, how do you sort of look after yourself now? Because you've had such a journey of learning. How do you, or do you? (laughs) I was like, I'm waiting for this question. (laughs) Well, my children are six and eight. So I've had them as a single parent from eight months and under two. So it's been quite difficult to actually look after myself. I've felt like I've done read a lot of spiritual books (laughs) (laughs) and I did a lot of yoga and did some yoga teacher training which really helped where I could get to the classes and do the training because life is pretty crazy and there's limited resources I've kind of gone for two approaches (laughs) two tactics I'm Kim I'm almost doing a science experiment on myself because I'm like right I'm pretty sure there's a path to enlightenment through (laughs) intellectualization the more I read the more I can intellectually detach from my stress and (laughs) everything will be fine so um, I'm kind of testing that one and then the other one is just like a acceptance because this and I do get a bit annoyed when I'll hear a podcast or I'll hear a health expert and they're like, you know, the best thing is to get up at 5 a.m. and go for your run and do this and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Drink every two hours. And I'm like, wow, like, have you had two children with gastro on you for three weeks and then no break after? Like, it's just like some people don't have that kind of like blessing in their life. (laughs) Instead of getting angry about that, because I did spend a lot of time just like in anger about that, you know, why is it me? Why am I in this situation? I just let that go. And then I just thought, you know what? Life actually has to be a moving, a moving relaxation, a moving meditation. And I think I've had so many iterations of life, what it looks like being sick, the ups and downs, all of it, that it's like, nothing's actually permanent. It's just not. I mean, you can get stuck in, you know, whatever's going on at the moment. But at the end of the day, if you don't pay the bills, if you don't do this, sure, you might get evicted, but there'll be somewhere else to live. (laughs) (laughs) Things work out. Yes, there'll be suffering, but nobody's entitled not to suffer. So it's just like looking at it in a different way, I think. But saying that, I mean, I do struggle on a daily basis with it. And I definitely struggle with parenting. I mean, I didn't, nobody's cut out for parenting. (laughs) Well, I'm not. (laughs) Maybe other people are. But, you know, every day I'm faced with my own um, 
inadequacies with that because I'm like oh my god and then I think I could be doing more like I could be learning more about how to parent these children or like we need this system in place so yeah I mean I think I'm probably just pretty normal (laughs) tired single mother (laughs) (laughs) trying to find a hack way to deal with stress absolutely but do you know what I loved what you did was share vulnerability and the truth and the reality of it because for any of our listeners who are in a similar position, it's like, oh my God, I'm not alone. Yeah. And I loved what you shared about acceptance. Yeah. Because when you can't really change the environment, it's how do you process or what's your perception of it? And I loved what you said about reframing. Can you reframe it in another way? And you've used a beautiful principle about just letting go of, and I feel like you've let go of perfection. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't exist now. <laughs> have and you're doing a PhD right but I put that on hold too by the way so I'll just let that go for a minute so yeah yeah, that's a good point for our listeners they, they'll be like how on earth is she doing a PhD as well that is such awesome advice Sean and before we leave you but I love to know about such a unique doctorate public health and diet related illness and a doctorate in law so how on earth did you even come up with that Yeah, so when I was doing medical law, I had a case, a group action is what we call it, rather than a class action, because each case was individual and unique. And it was a a weight loss surgeon that was performing like a very novel type of weight loss surgery that had never been done in Australia. And there wasn't a lot of science behind it. So it was quite radical. He also sat on the board of the hospitals where he worked. So he had a lot of power and influence. So there was a lot of questions around how this sort of procedure even got through but what so the lady that I was the senior associate partner she was leaving to go on maternity leave so basically I got handed all of these cases and that became my life for years and it really took me into this space of what you know why are people morbidly obese like what drives that and then this surgeon in particular was doing was kind of like a cult where he'd have meetings with them like six months leading in and he'd put them on a protein deficient diet like a very extreme diet that was just fruit and vegetables basically no meat no like no protein anything so these patients even though they were morbidly obese although they did lose a lot of weight but very very quickly they had signs of like severe malnutrition going into the surgery. Some of them didn't make it through the surgery. Those that did had like extreme post-operative complications, a lot of sepsis, a lot of just really strange illnesses. And so I started talking to experts around the world about nutrition and looking at macro and micronutrient deficiencies. And One of them in particular who wrote the first foundation text in Australia, he was working over in Korea and he was dealing with macronutrient deficiencies. And it was two o'clock or something in the morning because I had to account for the time. So I'm in the office at two o'clock in the morning having this amazing conversation. And then I'm just like, so hang on a day. You're dealing with people that are dying from macronutrient deficiency. Over here, we're dealing with people that are getting chronically ill and dying and going to extreme measures from micronutrient deficiency. And then I just started tracking through the law like a mad. I was like, well, what law is there that relates to nutrition? And there really wasn't anything. I mean, there was a little bit about negligent parents that starved their children so it was murder or manslaughter that was it 
And I was like, this is horrendous. You know, there's no human right to nutrition at all, which then took me deep. And it was something I've always, you know, I kind of came up a little bit in the human rights degree. But then it just took me further and further into that space where I was like, well, where does our law come from? How does it come from that? And I grew up on a farm and I was having these conversations with my dad at the time because I came from a hundred years of family butchering. He started to tell me the changes that were made, like when one of the big supermarket chains was opening in the local town. And it was basically like they had to move from using like wood wood chips that they'd, they'd lay the meat on wood chips because it would soak up the blood and it was all natural and then they'd use the wood chips back in the garden so that all went out the window and then supermarkets came in they wanted to take over meat basically all of a sudden you couldn't butcher animals on your property you had to send them to the official government abattoir you had to use like these horrendous chemicals in the butchery like you had to wash everything down you had to cover all of the meat and chemicals And then my grandfather died quite young from prostate cancer. And I just remember like just having that curious, like, why? Well, like, why? So it was around this time when I was in this space. And then I just started like farming chemicals, prostate cancer. And then it just all came out. It was just like all these environmental factors. And then I was like, oh my Lord, like the levels of agrochemicals in the food now, you know, they keep getting increased. Like all of the laws are basically like food sanitation, food security, like whatever that means, and which is usually technology driven or like mass produced farming driven. It's not community driven. And then these, yeah, like chemicals, like just keep upping and upping the chemicals. And then there's a lot around prohibiting people from being like self-sufficient. So yeah, it just took me down this track. And then because of the law question, I don't think I ever felt like I fit in in law because I came from that working class background. I didn't come from this exclusive commercial law family or I sort of wasn't in the in crowd. And yeah, it just really dawned on me that food is a commodity. It's not a human right. There's no right to nutrition. And the people actually don't control that. And the law really has, I think there's been a lot of behind the scenes work or lobbyists sort of basically been driving that agenda and then nobody's really been focusing on it in terms of well what is our law how do we fix that because you know this food related illness is crippling our economy it's costing us more than anything else the latest statistics are just off the charts and even that's not getting talked about but then saying that if you look at the top companies that export food from Australia we really are the food bowl of you know quite significant portion of the world and it's just a huge industry huge industry so yeah I mean at what point do people accept that they're happy with that and at what point you know like we make the law at the end of the day like but people drive the law okay it might take like 50 years to change it but at what point are we going to actually step up and just hit the heart of it you know like the definition of food is any substance whether it's edible or not wow okay wow i did not realize that any substance for human consumption whether it's edible or not it's like wow so basically we can feed our kids plastic wow you know that's mind-blowing just from what you said because i see it from the other end of doctors not taught nutrition and literally just following the pyramid which doesn't support health the current pyramid and you're always in conflict because everyone 
knows something different. So unfortunately the patient will receive completely mixed messages because I was just chatting to a colleague who's a gynecologist and she said, oh, I've been telling my patients to eat frequently. And I go, ah, no, because that drives insulin and that will drive insulin resistance. And so everyone seems to have a different understanding of food. And so it's so complicated for the poor patient. Absolutely, because there's no real proper training when it comes to nutrition. I think at the end of the day, I have quite a simple view and it's just like we need nutrient-dense, fresh food that we actually have access to, you know, food. We might have food security and we might have food sanitation. But, I mean, I live in suburbia and when I go to the supermarket, I'm buying all organic because I feel like I'm neurotic now. You know, it's not fresh. I'm eating it and I'm like, this is... These mandarins have been sitting there for six, seven weeks probably. It's not nutrient dense. So it's organic, but is it going to help? Probably not. You know, so it's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done around this. Yeah. And then I think it has been deliberately made quite political. And then, of course, I've sat in on a lot of the climate change discussions around food and, at the UN level, there's a group that are trying to go in for, you know, nutrition is a human right. But then that seems to be overtaken by technology companies that are like, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to get everybody's health data and their metrics and we're going to get them on their devices. And then we're going to measure their nutrition, you know, produce it offsite, ship it in. And it's like, wow, you know, like how far removed have we come from growing a lettuce in our backyard? How far removed have we come from having like lemon trees and banana trees, the nature strip, which you wouldn't want to do nowadays because they just spray it with glyphosate. I can never say it. You're absolutely right, isn't it? It's just a, it's a world away from eating whole foods which are not filled with chemicals, sprayed with chemicals. And I, and I actually believe like that the younger generation may not even know where food comes from, the basis of where they shop. And I was just telling a patient today, actually, about processed foods and let, let's try and avoid them. And I basically said, just avoid shopping in the middle of the supermarket and just go on the outskirts because that's literally where you really need to go. Everywhere else, it's in a package in some form, which is so true. That's so mind-blowing, Sean. And I cannot believe nutrition is not considered a human right. No. Wow. Yeah, even food in Australia. So there's a bit of legislation around food donorship. There's not really a right to food donorship. But, yeah, I mean, food's not even a human right. There's no, if the food dried up tomorrow, there is no, nothing to say you can have access to food. That's scary. It's totally scary. I mean, we're relying on the goodwill and intent of government entities that define food as any substance for human consumption so you know if we do get food what like what are they going to drop off <laughs> if anything this will just inspire people to actually grow food and so no exactly which is hard though because i mean i've suffered the having to move from a beautiful one acre property where we were growing food to suburbia and then it was funny because in there was a block of units that I lived in and there was eight people in the units and I just started planting this garden. So and then the whole block of units got on board with it. My kids were little, so it was really nice. But then the owner came around and sprayed everything. Oh, no. Wow. So we came home one day from school and everything was dead and the kids were like, oh, what happened to the eggplant? I'm like, don't touch it. Yeah, so it's like 
even that's difficult for people that are displaced, that don't have ownership rights because, you know, food as a commodity means it is actually owned. Somebody owns food. It's not the people at this point, you know, maybe some. But Thank you so much, Sean. I feel like this conversation can go on and on and on, but you've just hit so many amazing spots of points of reflection from the stresses that you went through as a lawyer being a single mom, wearing all these different hats to just us just reflecting on food, our relationship with food and what that looks like as well in the future. So thank you so much, Sean. That's okay. Thanks for having me. Remember that this is general advice only. Please see your healthcare professional for more information. So what's your take home message today? Remember, it's all about progress and not perfection. And are you suffering from stress? Visit Usawa Learning Hub on usawa.com.au and sign up for the six-week challenge on how to reduce stress today. Enjoy the journey.